derecho de vivir sin miedo en nuestro país en conciencia y unidad FM, your community radio station, also streaming on uh, live online at WVEW.org. And you're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. And you were just listening to Victor Jara's resistant song, El Derecho de Vivir en Paz, by Chilean artist. This is Anna Milani, and today we are talking about the situation in Bolivia and resistance to and the relationship to U.S. imperialism. Just this past week, our host, Becca Polk, interviewed Professor Kevin Young, and Kevin is a UMass Amherst professor. Uh, his main research and teaching interests are in modern Latin America. His 2017 book, Blood of the Earth, Resource Nationalism, Revolution, and Empire in Bolivia, traces the history of Bolivian struggles over mineral and hydrocarbon resources. So we are going to go to uh, Kevin and Becca's interview. And um, we'll play this first part. Thank you so much for joining us on Indigo Radio today. Good to be with you. 
Um, so can you start by describing for us what's happening in Bolivia and the forces that are involved in this coup, both in the streets and behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. Sure. So on November 10th, the elected president, Evo Morales, uh, was ousted uh, in a coup after the top commander of the Bolivian military intervened and uh, suggested, in big quotes, that he resign. Um, so the military intervened in politics, and um, that led to the removal of the, the constitutionally elected president. Uh, so it fits the, the standard definition of a coup. There shouldn't be any doubt about that. Um, now, in the preceding days, um, the Bolivian police um, had mutinied, said that they're not going to enforce order on the streets. Uh, the military had also said uh, that it wouldn't um, participate um, in enforcing uh, the law. Um, and then uh, on Sunday, November 10th, that's when the top commander of the military uh, made this public announcement that Evo should resign. So then uh, Evo and uh, the vice president flew uh, first in, uh, to central Bolivia and then into exile in Mexico. Um, the top um, legislators from the ruling party, the MAS, um, to the, the presidents of the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies in Bolivia, uh, they both resigned as well um, under threat of violence. Uh, and a whole slew of other officials from the, the ruling party um, simultaneously resigned. Um, and that was in an atmosphere where um, politicians' uh, homes were being burned, um, their uh, families were being given death threats. Um, so uh, that's what led to the, the resignation of all of these MAS legislators and, and cabinet officials. Um, so uh, the, uh, the forces who are... Um, carrying out the coup and who have been benefiting from the coup uh, is the traditional right wing uh, in Bolivia. And that right wing has a terrifying history of racism and violence uh, against the country's indigenous majority. Um, so the, the majority of Bolivia is indigenous. It's the most heavily indigenous country in the Americas. Um, but nonetheless, there is a very significant population of lighter-skinned Bolivians uh, who are um, concentrated especially in the eastern lowlands of the country. Um, and they also have traditionally occupied the, um, you know, the position at the top of the economic hierarchy, uh, the capitalist class and the upper middle classes uh, in the country. So they've never, uh, most of them have never fully accepted um, uh, the Evo Morales uh, administration. Um, so ever since he was first elected in 2005, they've, they've been dead set against his government. Uh, there was some, you know, uh, some detente, uh, I guess you could say, between the government and those, some of those right-wing opposition forces um, uh, starting around uh, 2010 or so. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, they, they've never, um, uh, they've never fully, uh, uh, come to terms with the mosque government, and they've uh, continued to be interested in, in, in overthrowing it. So uh, the uh, the candidate that Evo was running against on October 10th, uh, his name is Carlos Mesa, and he's kind of a center-right uh, neoliberal candidate. Um, 
and he won about 36% of the vote uh, to Evo's 47%. Um, and Mesa, Carlos Mesa is kind of a, you know, lackluster, uh, neoliberal, um, not a very inspiring character. Uh, but what's really notable is that in the aftermath of the October 20th election, where uh, Mesa and, and all of his um, other opposition colleagues immediately started crying fraud, uh, which is typical of the Latin American right uh, and basically any election that they lose, they immediately accuse uh, the left of fraud um, and, uh, you know, usually without uh, offering any real uh, systematic evidence. Uh, as was the case here. So, so Mesa and, and, uh, his colleagues, uh, immediately started, um, accusing the government of fraud. Uh, but in the three weeks between October 20th and November 10th, Mesa is really displaced. And the figure who takes up the, uh, the leadership, the informal leadership of the opposition, uh, is a much more extreme right-wing, uh, character named Luis Fernando Camacho, uh, and he's a, a wealthy uh, businessman, uh, very light-skinned, uh, who comes from the eastern part of Bolivia, uh, where the traditional oligarchs um, are, are concentrated. Uh, and Camacho has a background in uh, racist paramilitary forces that have uh, violently resisted um, uh, the advances in indigenous rights and the progressive economic and social policies that the MAS government has overseen in the last 13 years. Uh, so there have been uh, several moments at which um, the, the far right has mobilized and um, committed large-scale violence against uh, Bolivia's indigenous people, um, most notably maybe in 2008 uh, when uh, the entire uh, eastern part of the country, eastern and southeastern part of the country, uh, actually tried to secede from Bolivia uh, because they wanted to, um, they didn't want to be ruled by an indigenous president, for one thing, uh, and they also didn't want to uh, have to share the um, hydrocarbons wealth uh, that was located in their territory. Uh, so those are the forces, those, those uh, far right-wing forces are the ones that have been uh, that, that have come to the fore here and who are, na and, and who are now uh, essentially calling the shots in the national government. Uh, the, the candidate or the, the Senate um, leader who took over um, two days after the coup, Janine Añez, um, her party uh, received 4% of the vote in the presidential election on October 20th. Uh, so not someone with any degree of uh, broad support uh, or popular legitimacy. Uh, she was installed in power on November 12th in a very dubious, uh, from a constitutional perspective, uh, process. Uh, she was not one of the people who was constitutionally in line to take over should the president resign. Uh, there were four positions that um, uh, the president, vice president, uh, and the presidents of the Senate and then the Chamber of Deputies. Uh, so as in the United States where we have a designated line of secession should the president be removed or die or something, uh, Bolivia has a similar process uh, in their constitution 
and Agnes, who actually ended up did, taking over, uh, was not even in that line of succession. The only reason she uh, was able to impose herself um, was that uh, the, the head of the Chamber of Deputies in the Senate also resigned, along with the vice president and the president. Um, so, you know, if that hadn't happened, if those resignations hadn't happened, uh, the far right would never have been able to take over the, the reins of the government. Uh, so that's another reason why this is a coup. It's not just the renunciation. It's not just the uh, the resignation of Evo Morales. Um, it's the transfer of power uh, from the MAS party uh, to opposition parties, in this case an extreme sector of the opposition, uh, which has very little popular support. Um, and they've immediately started taking, uh, m- uh, making major changes uh, in national policy. Um, so they deployed um, military violence against protesters. Uh, at least 23 people have been killed since October 20th. Um, since Agnes took power, uh, she has uh, essentially legalized uh, state terrorism. Uh, on November 14th, she issued a secret decree, number 4078, uh, granting military personnel total immunity uh, for violence committed uh, in the discharge of their duties. Uh, the very next day, uh, the military killed nine uh, pro-AVO demonstrators outside of the central city of Cochabamba. Um, the following Tuesday, uh, November 19th, uh, they killed eight more people uh, just outside the, the capital city. Uh, so that's that's the state of affairs right now. That's that's what the coup regime is uh, doing in Bolivia. Uh, it's also um, instituted major changes in uh, Bolivia's foreign policy, uh, even though Agnes really has no mandate at all to do that. So she has expelled Cuban medical professionals from the country. Um, she's recognized the coup regime in Venezuela, uh, the Guaido regime, um, so, uh, there, you know, all of the signs point to this being a, a very coherent, uh, right-wing coup project. Uh, and it's very frightening. And the, and the primary victims, of course, are, uh, working class and peasant, uh, indigenous Bolivians. Um, so it's very frightening, um, and it remains to be seen exactly, uh, what's going to come out of this. Um, there's been tremendous resistance by, um, the population. Um, to uh, the, the coup regime that's in power. Um, there have been scores of road blockades across the country, road blockades being the major um, uh, uh, protest tactic of uh, Bolivians uh, for the last several decades, um, and they've essentially paralyzed the country. Um, and that resistance has had some effect, I believe. It's forced the, the coup regime into a dialogue uh, with MAS legislators. Um, and uh, it's forced the Anya uh, de facto government to, um, to to really reckon with um, the major resistance that they're seeing around the country. So Anya said initially that uh, uh, the MAS party might be excluded, might be banned from all future elections. Uh, and uh, she's since had to kind of walk that back a little bit uh, because you know, the, the popular resistance that emerged after November 10th made it very clear that that, that kind of um, imposition was not going to fly. Uh, 
Um, so that res- the popular resistance is uh, it does seem to be having some uh, some effect. Um, Kevin, before you go on, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of history about MAS or the movement for socialism in Bolivia, and also some of the work that Evo Morales has done for the Bolivian people. Mm-hmm. So the MAS party was formed in 1998, and it comes out of um, the uh, central region of Cochabamba, where Evo Morales was a, a leader of the Coca Growers Union. Um, and it was founded, uh, stands for Movement to Socialism. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it has talked about socialism. I would characterize it more as a kind of social democratic party. It's a progressive social democratic party rather than a, uh, a radical anti capitalist party. But, um, it was founded um, on a platform of resistance to U.S. imperialism, including the, the militarized drug war uh, in Bolivia at the time, and a, resist, uh, a party of resistance to neoliberal economic policies. Um, Bolivia experienced uh, some of the most radical neoliberal reforms in all of Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, you know, the, the state sector was drastically downsized, budget austerity, uh, privatizations of um, the state-owned uh, enterprises and of utilities and public services. Uh, and those things had really detrimental impacts on, on most of the population. Um, so the MAS represented a uh, political party that, um, that offered an anti-neoliberal platform. Uh, so that's, that's the, uh, where the mosque came from. And it was immediately opposed by the United States, as you might expect. Uh, in 2002, uh, we know from some of the um, U.S. government documents that have been leaked um, and later confirmed by WikiLeaks. Uh, in 2002, uh, there's a U.S. embassy memo that we have uh, called the Political Party Reform Project. And uh, read one of the key quotes. It says that, um, this project will, quote, serve as a counterweight to the radical MAS or its successors. Uh, so from the very beginning, even before Evo Morales took power, the U.S. Embassy had identified the MAS as a threat. It was a threat because it had, it, it was, it was, um, uh, promoting social democratic policies, uh, that would help the indigenous and working class majority in Bolivia. And it was opposed the U.S. interventionism in Bolivia and in Latin America. So already the United States in 2002 was articulating a policy of trying to divide Bolivia's popular movements and cultivate cultivate these so-called moderate forces that would be uh, aligned with the United States and basically aligned with the neoliberal economic project that the United States has uh, continually favored uh, since the 1970s and 80s in Latin America. Um, so, uh, the MAS party, when it took power uh, in 2006, Evo was inaugurated. Uh, one of the first things he did was to dramatically increase the taxation rates on natural gas companies. Natural gas, uh, being the, uh, the leading export of Bolivia and one of these, one of the, the many sectors that had been privatized in the 1990s. Um, so that, uh, People call it a nationalization of natural gas. It's, uh, the term is a little bit misleading because it wasn't really a nationalization. It was, though, a, a dramatic 
uh, increase in the level of taxation and royalties that were applied to uh, gas companies. And um, the importance of that was that that brought uh, a huge amount of new revenue into the state, and much of that revenue was then channeled into things like public infrastructure, uh, in the healthcare sector, the transportation sector, the education sector. Um, it was channeled into other sorts of social spending, um, subsidies for low-income families, uh, school children, elderly people, pregnant mothers, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, so that social spending that was enabled by the increase in taxes on gas companies um, has produced some pretty remarkable results uh, since 2006. Um, the Mas Party uh, presided over a 42% reduction in poverty. Uh, the rate of extreme poverty was reduced by 60%. Uh, so those are major economic and social gains uh, that not even the opposition, not even Carlos Mesa in the October 20th election, he didn't even contest that uh, because he didn't think he could. Um, so it was interesting that, that his platform didn't actually attack uh, Evo very much on, on the economics uh, and the social gains of the last 13 years. Um, now, all of that being said, there is nonetheless uh, some serious dissension within the Mas Party and within the popular support base of the government. Uh, there are criticisms from the left of Evo's administration. There are criticisms that uh, it wasn't aggressive enough in trying to redistribute the country's wealth. Uh, there are criticisms that uh, it has uh, maintained or perhaps even deepened the extractivist agenda, uh, relying on um, extraction of natural gas and petroleum um, minerals as well, uh, and also um, favoring the development of large-scale agribusiness in the eastern lowlands of the country. Uh, the soy industry is, is very big in eastern Bolivia. Um, so there are environmental criticisms of, of Evo's administration. There are uh, criticisms that it uh, has been actually too conservative rather than too radical. Um, and uh, there are also criticisms of um, the internal um, structure of the MAS party. Many people uh, who agree, who basically agree with Cable's policies, uh, nonetheless um, uh, were, were um, upset that Abel had put himself forward for a fourth term. Uh, in office, uh, so there's 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 a degree of discontent among the Mas's own base uh, with the lack of uh, of uh, new leadership. Uh, they, a lot of people feel like the Mas hasn't done enough to open the door to uh, young leaders. Uh, so there is that dissension within uh, uh, within Bolivian progressive circles. Uh, so it's important, I think, to recognize that. Not all of the opposition to the government uh, is coming from the right, and not all of the criticism of Evo Morales uh, is uh, of the same type. Not all of it is racist or reactionary and, and neoliberal. Um, so there's there's complexity in this situation, um, but you know even the people who criticize Evo Morales from a progressive standpoint, a standpoint of indigenous rights and environmental sustainability. Um, or, or a socialist standpoint, uh, those people, most of them, uh, have nonetheless mobilized in resistance to this right-wing coup uh, because right. they recognize it 
as a right-wing coup that is being backed by the United States. Uh, and it's, it's uh, directly endangering um, the lives and the well-being of the majority in Bolivia. And we've seen that in the last two weeks very clearly uh, with this mass violence that the regime is committing uh, with the, the help of the military and the police uh, against protesters that are mostly nonviolent. Um, so, you know, the the nature of the coup regime has become very apparent now, and I, I think that that has helped to galvanize the resistance uh, to the agenda of the right. Um, so, you know, this this is a complex situation. It's not black and white, but the complexities of the situation um, shouldn't blind us to the fact that this is a coup. It's a coup uh, that is fully aligned uh, with U.S. imperialism. And its aims are very clear, to restore the traditional power of the Bolivian oligarchy, uh, to roll back the gains uh, in terms of indigenous rights, in terms of poverty redistribution and uh, redistribution of wealth. Uh, those are the aims of, of the coup regime, and we shouldn't lose sight of that, you know, even if we have some criticisms of of able knowledge. We shouldn't lose, lose uh, sight of the big picture here. Mientras saltan las ovejas en las rejas del redil, dulcemente silba el viento su lamento pastoril. Dulcemente silba el viento su lamento pastoril. Y en el huerto murmurante va el fragante manantial, arrastrando suavemente su corriente musical. Arrastrando suavemente su corriente musical. Lanza lluvias de colores en las flores del rosal, el sonoro pedrerío del rocío matinal, el sonoro pedrerío del rocío matinal, y la fuente pintoresca que refresca mi vergel, huele a nardo y a verbena y a su cena y a clavel, huele a nardo y a verbena y a su cena y a clavel. Mientras saltan las ovejas en las rejas del redil, dulcemente sirve el viento su lamento pastoril. Dulcemente sirve el viento su lamento pastoril. Y en el huerto murmurante va el fragante manantial, arrastrando suavemente su corriente musical. Arrastrando suavemente su corriente musical. Lanza lluvias de colores en las flores del rosal, el sonoro pedrerío del rocío matinal. El sonoro pedrerío del rocío matinal. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW, and that song was Instantania by Nilo Zuruko, and he was a Bolivian songwriter in the 70s um, that wrote a lot of protest songs, and 
a lot of his songs are actually banned in Bolivia during the 1970s. If you're just joining us, you are um, listening to a show on the situation in Bolivia, and we had a chance to interview Kevin Young, and Becca Polk, our other host, interviewed him this week on uh, the current situation in Bolivia, giving us some historical context and the relationship to the United States. So we're going to go to the second part of the interview. It's so interesting to me that, um, like you said, some of these um, progressive movements in Latin America that maybe aren't even progressive enough in terms of really changing the structure of how capitalism operates, and yet the oligarchs react to even just the like fact of a government taking care of poor people and see that as a crime. And we've seen this over and over again from Allende in the 70s to Zelaya in 2009, that um, people trying to make small movements against the oligarchs will end up um, with U.S. imperialism also knocking at their door. <laughs> um, and so I'm wondering if you can contextualize a little bit more some of the people's struggles throughout the Americas against these neoliberal policies and also the increased militarization um, throughout the Americas and how this connects back to Bolivia. Sure. So I think that you're really making an excellent point there that even the most modest reforms, the most modest progressive reforms are always perceived by the traditional elite as an all-out war. Um, so even if they appear to be um, uh, accepting those reforms at the time, uh, they'll often uh, take any chance they get to, to roll back the, the tide and um, go back on the offensive, and that's what we're seeing in, in Bolivia. Uh, whereas, I, like I said, there had been this kind of rapprochement between um, some of the economic elite and Evo's administration, uh, but when given the chance to regain full power, uh, they've, they've taken it. Um, now, in terms of the regional context, it is important to see this coup in Bolivia in terms of the larger uh, regional context. Uh, in Starting in 1998, the same year that the MAS party was founded, uh, we see um, the beginning of a wave of uh, so-called pink tide governments in Latin America, starting in 1998 with Hugo Chavez's first election in Venezuela, uh, later uh, Lula, uh, his election in Brazil, 2002, um, and then later countries like Bolivia, Ecuador, um, Argentina, uh, and a host of others, uh, which were diverse, uh, of course, they didn't all pursue the same policies, but they were all basically united by a platform that rejected neoliberal economics and rejected uh, U.S. interventionism in the region. Um, so those governments uh, substantially, very substantially, reduced poverty in the region, uh, they, they presided over a lot of very notable reforms that improved the quality of life for people in their countries. Um, they also put in place meaningful checks on the power of the United States in the hemisphere. Uh, there were important moves made toward the formation of new regional coalitions and organizations uh, that would not be subject to U.S. domination. Uh, so part of what they were, were reacting against was uh, the U.S.'s traditional domination of organizations like the OAS, the Organization of American States, which was founded after World, World War II, 
and had long functioned as basically a vehicle for uh, U.S. interests under the guise of this multilateral um, organization. Um, so in the early 2000s, this is what we see, uh, social and economic policies that to some extent challenged neoliberalism. They reduced poverty, they reduced inequality, um, and they also limited U.S. Uh, domination in the region. Um, but by the second decade of this century, um, that pink tide of progressive governments uh, started to be rolled back. Um, so in 2009, um, the, the military coup in Honduras, which was backed by the United States, uh, that's one of the first examples. So you, you mentioned that, Becca. Um, the coup that overthrew uh, Manuel Zelaya, uh, this you know very moderate, reform-oriented president in Honduras in 2009, uh, installed a new right-wing government. Um, and um, you know from there, from then on, uh, we see that same basic scenario play out in a number of different places. Uh, we see um, other sorts of coups, uh, not quite military coups, but uh, many analysts refer to them as parliamentary coups, where the opposition in Congress uh, targeted a progressive president and uh, got them thrown out of office on dubious legal grounds. Uh, so we saw this in Brazil in 2016. That was the probably the most uh, important example. Uh, when Dilma Rousseff, the president, was, uh, was impeached on uh, very suspicious grounds, very shaky legal grounds. Uh, and then uh, Lula, who uh, by all evidence would have won the 2018 election in Brazil, he was legally barred from running on uh, uh, phony corruption charges. Uh, he's, he's actually since been um, freed from jail just in the last week or so. Uh, so um, all of these dirty tricks of the right uh, have have enabled um, right-wing forces in the United States to roll back uh, many of the um, progressive advances that had been made in the first decade of the century. Uh, so the regional context today is very different than it was 10 years ago. Uh, we have right-wing governments uh, or center-right, at least, uh, governments ruling uh, the majority of the continent now. Um, and uh, some of those governments are are completely illegitimate. Uh, take Bolsonaro in Brazil, for instance. Um, illegitimate for some of the reasons I mentioned. Um, so the, re the regional context is uh, important to re recognize, but the other piece of that context is that uh, there continues to be ferocious popular resistance to neoliberal programs, to militarization, and to U.S. interventionism. And we've seen that very clearly in the last two months. Uh, we saw in Ecuador uh, rebellion against uh, austerity that impacted uh, working-class people. Uh, later in, in Chile, uh, starting in early October, um, this, uh, this multitudinous, uh, movement against uh, neoliberal austerity um, uh, that began in early October and uh, grew to include perhaps several million Chileans out in the streets. Um, so, uh, and then, and then, just this past week, we see in the case of Colombia, uh, hundreds of thousands of people taking part in this nationwide strike, the largest that Colombia has seen in many years. 
uh, again, you, the protesters united by a rejection of these neoliberal policies of budget austerity and um, privatization and uh, and also government authoritarianism. Um, and uh, in the case of Chile, one of the things that the um, uh, that the protesters are challenging is the fact that the uh, constitution in the country, which was passed in 1980, is the same constitution that that the um, that was uh, in effect during the dictatorship of uh, Augusto Pinochet. Uh, so, it's a highly authoritarian constitution, which uh, really hamstrings um, per any progressive government that would try to institute reforms. Um, that constitution is still in place, even though Chile, ha- Chile has been nominally democratic now since 1990. Uh, the basic economic policies and social policies of the country haven't meaningfully changed. So that's where that uh, Chilean resistance movement is coming from. Uh, and likewise in Colombia. Uh, Colombia has been another uh, poster child of Latin American neoliberalism, much like Chile has been. Uh, Colombia has, has long had governments that are closely allied with the United States and which have uh, very aggressively implemented the neoliberal economic agenda. Uh, and at the same time, they've repressed um, uh, nonviolent social movements in the country. Hundreds of social movement leaders in Colombia have been murdered since the 2016 peace accords uh, between the government and the FARC guerrilla forces. So in just the last three years, hundreds of uh, Colombian social movement activists have been murdered, uh, usually with total impunity. Uh, and usually the murders uh, are carried out by right-wing paramilitary forces, the same kinds of forces that are now rearing their ugly head in Bolivia uh, and, and threatening uh, Bolivia's indigenous people and workers with, with violence. Um, so, you know, there, at a certain level, the rollback of the Latin American pink tide is certainly a victory for neoliberalism, the right, and um, uh, U.S. interventionism. Uh, but there's, uh, on the other side of the coin, we also see uh, popular resistance to that agenda uh, in Bolivia and Chile and Colombia uh, and, and many other places. Um, so that is certainly a cause for hope. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't want to go back, roll back from the hope, but I just wanted to <laughs> bring in a little bit um, about how the School of Americas, or what's now dubbed as WINSEC, mm-hmm. um, is kind of popping up in the headlines again as six graduates played a role in the coup in Bolivia. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the military funding and training that's happening for these right-wing paramilitaries, but even the government and police of these countries? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the United States has has long funded right-wing forces in Latin America. This this is no secret to anybody who's um, familiar with any of the region's history. Um, Throughout the Cold War, the United States funded uh, some of the most vicious right-wing uh, military and paramilitary forces um, in the 19, early 1960s under John F. Kennedy, a president who 
many of us uh, think of as being relatively liberal, um, that was precisely when the United States started creating some of the modern-day death squads, countries like El Salvador and Colombia. Um, and those were the, the forces that would then go on to uh, kill hundreds of thousands of people um, in the post-World War II era. Um, so that, that same kind of strategy does persist today. Uh, Washington continues to fund uh, military and police forces uh, under the guise of security or uh, fighting the war on drugs and so on. Um, the, the level of U.S. military aid in, in absolute terms isn't uh, as high as it was during the Cold War, uh, but the basic uh, strategic objectives remain the same. Uh, the United States has always been concerned with um, developing um, uh, a base of support among Latin American militaries and police uh, because it's always recognized that the military, military in particular, plays uh, a decisive role as arbiter. Uh, so going back to the early post-World War II period, uh, you can see a lot of U.S. government documents that talk about this, uh, the need to cultivate uh, pro-U.S. attitudes among Latin American militaries. So tremendous resources were invested in that endeavor. Uh, and that continues today. And uh, the strategy often pays off, of course. Uh, the uh, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces in Bolivia was the one who's, uh, who decisively intervened on November 10th uh, to overthrow Evo Morales. Uh, so that strategy is uh, paying off. And you mentioned the, uh, the training. The training has uh, long been a very important uh, part of this uh, of this relationship. The United States, uh, after World War II, began uh, bringing uh, Latin American military personnel to uh, the School of the Americas, as it was then called. Uh, first, it was located in Panama, and then it was um, um, uh, relocated to Fort Benning, Georgia. In the early 2000s, they, 2000s, they renamed it as the Western Hemis Hemispheric Institute for uh, Security. Uh, so, uh, WINSEC. So, uh, because the, the School of the Americas label had gotten a bad rap. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that basic strategy of trying to cultivate um, pro-U.S. military personnel uh, persists today, and, uh, and it continues to have an impact. Uh, in Bolivia, we don't know precisely what role the United States played in the coup, um, that uh, that information will probably emerge later. Uh, but what we do know is that the United States has been very supportive of the coup. Uh, it immediately recognized the new regime. Um, and we also know that much of the U.S. funding does not go directly to militaries. So there's another part of U.S. funding which is uh, dedicated to subverting, uh, in the case of Bolivia, subverting um, the uh, the power and the influence of left-wing forces. Uh, so going back to the, the document from 2002 uh, from the U.S. Embassy in Bolivia that I, I mentioned at the outset, um, they, uh, the uh, embassy staff talks very explicitly about the need to fund uh, these civilian groupings which could, uh, which could constitute a, a counterweight to the MAS party. Um, so much of this uh, U.S. aid 
that goes to opposition forces in places like Bolivia isn't actually military aid. At least it's not classified that way. It's often classified under other labels, like uh, democracy promotion. That's a favorite phrase of the, of the United States going back to the 1980s. Um, so the the entities that that oversee the delivery of that aid um, also go back to the 80s. Many of them do. Uh, and some of them go back further than that. But in the 1980s, the, um, the Democratic and Republican parties formed new organizations that would uh, help channel aid to uh, civilian forces, which were ideologically sympathetic to the United States. Uh, so that's where we get uh, the International Republican Institute, for instance, which is uh, you know, basically an appendage of the Republican Party, uh, but it channels funds to ideologically sympathetic civilian forces abroad. Uh, the Democratic Party has its own uh, similar agency. Uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, another uh, entity which is very important in channeling aid to um, uh, conservative opposition forces uh, in country after country, including in Bolivia. Um, so since the early 2000s, tens of millions of dollars have gone to uh, these right-wing civilian groups throughout Latin America, including in Bolivia. Uh, so the um, the U.S. alliance is not just with the military and police forces. It's also with uh, groups like um, the Cruceño Youth Union, uh, which is Luis Fernando Camacho's organization in, in Santa Cruz uh, in Bolivia. Um, that's one of the organizations that the United States has looked to as an ally. It's a... Uh, classified as a civilian organization, although it also carries out uh, paramilitary uh, actions. It is armed. It's uh, militaristic, uh, neo-fascist, in this case, uh, organization. Uh, but uh, classified, of course, as a, as a civilian um, organization for the purposes of U.S. aid. So these are the the kind of uh, the so-called champions of democracy that the United States supports uh, overseas. That's Kevin Young, UMass Amherst Professor of History that you were just listening to. And this is Indigo Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're discussing Bolivia today. And we're just going to go to a quick song break, and we'll be back to play the rest. This is a Bolivian group called Atajo, and their song is Nunca Mas. No te hagas aquí Nos prometieron Pero todo sigue igual Yo me acuerdo De Chaquito Siempre ha sido así Nos han robado Nos quieren vender Si no seguimos Durmiendo tu alma se perder Pero nunca Nos quiero
That is Atajo with Nunca Mas. And you're listening to Indigo Radio every Sunday at noon on Brattleboro WBEW 107.7, your local community radio station. This is Anna, and you've been listening to an interview that Becca Polk conducted with UMass professor Kevin Young, uh, who has done a lot of research and teaching around the history and issues in Latin America, and he is talking about Bolivia. We are going to go to the remaining part of that interview. So bringing it back a little bit to resistance um, and talking about the School of Americas, the movement to shut down the School of Americas, School of Americas Watch, just had their 30th anniversary at Fort Benning, um, where they were both demanding like an end to the coup in Bolivia, but also talking about the history of all the people who have been massacred and killed throughout the Americas, but also bringing forth the resistance. And this movement actually was what introduced me to Latin America history and social movements. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about other examples of solidarity that are happening right now um, with Bolivia in particular, with the MAS movement, but also just in general um, organizing work and how you see it connected to what's happening here in the United States. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in the United States got involved in the Central America solidarity movement in the 1980s, uh, which was especially focused on Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Uh, in the case of El Salvador and Guatemala, the United States was supporting a series of uh, extreme right military regimes that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, in the case of Guatemala, the military regime carried out uh, what the UN Truth Commission in that country later uh, classified as a genocide against uh, Maya people in the uh, highlands of Guatemala. Uh, and similar story in, Guata- in, in El Salvador with some variations. Uh, in Nicaragua, the United States was funding a um, uh, an insurgency force known as the Contras to overthrow the Sandinista government. Uh, the Contras uh, killed about 30,000 Nicaraguans. Um, so that drew that that context drew in uh, hundreds of thousands of new activists into the solidarity movement in the 80s. Uh, and you know, I'm not old enough to directly remember that movement, but uh, it's been very inspiring to me to to learn more about that um, about that movement, to speak with people who are involved with it. Uh, and many of those people are still active today. Uh, some of the people here in Western Massachusetts uh, who have been involved with doing uh, Venezuela solidarity work and who have uh, in the last several weeks mobilized uh, to, to denounce the coup in Bolivia, uh, many of those people come out of that Central America solidarity movement of the 1980s. Uh, so they've been around a long time and, and they have a lot of experience uh, in, in resisting their government's policies in Latin America. Uh, so, you know, I, I could say a little bit about what we're doing here in Western Massachusetts. Uh, for the last year, uh, since the, the coup, uh, the, the coup attempt really in, in Venezuela, uh, there's been a coalition of us who have, um, been uh, trying to, uh, educate people in the area about, uh, the coup and about U.S. support for it and about the impacts of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, which are extremely serious. Uh, 40,000 people killed due to sanctions uh, in 2017 and 2018 alone. 
That's according to uh, a report earlier this year by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Uh, and uh, in the course of 2019, it's safe to assume that the sanctions have killed uh, probably tens of thousands more. Um, so we've been working uh, in opposition to those sanctions, uh, trying to educate people, trying to mobilize people, and trying to get uh, our government leaders, the people who theoretically represent us, uh, just take a strong stand in, in opposition to U.S. intervention in all its forms, not just the threat of U.S. military intervention, but also the many uh, often more insidious ways that the U.S. intervenes, uh, like in the case of economic sanctions uh, with Venezuela. Um, in the case of Bolivia, in the last several weeks, we've uh, been meeting with um, some of our legislators and their staffs uh, and trying to figure out ways to pressure them into uh, denouncing the coup, denouncing the repression of the coup regime. Um, so, you know, this uh, this uh, current effort to oppose U.S. policy uh, does have its roots in, in the earlier solidarity movements, and it's important to study those movements and uh, take inspiration from them and learn the learn the appropriate lessons uh, from from the work that they did. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. And um, we'll link to your film about Venezuela on our Facebook page as well. Okay. Um, so we appreciate anything, final words you have for our listeners? I would say that those of us in the United States uh, have a real moral responsibility here uh, to oppose what our government is doing in places like Venezuela and Bolivia. And opposing U.S. interventionism and uh, denouncing the impacts of that intervention, um, that should really be our primary focus when it comes to these countries. Um, and, it, you know, the fact that the situation is complex, that it's messy, um, that there are uh, some legitimate criticisms of, say, the Maduro government in Venezuela or the Morales government in Bolivia, uh, shouldn't cloud our judgment. Um, our task still remains the same. Our task as people who reside in the United States, uh, particularly if we're U.S. citizens, our task is to um, uh, try to influence the behavior of our government uh, so that people in Venezuela or Bolivia or elsewhere um, can have the debates that they need to have among themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, about what needs to happen uh, for for their own countries. Um, so you know, I think that we can, um, you know, we can we can do our best to understand the complexity of these situations, uh, and we don't need to see the situations in black and white terms of good versus evil. Um, you know, we can we can uh, have a nuanced and complex analysis, but we we shouldn't lose sight of the, the fundamental. And the fundamental, in our case, is the destructive impact that our government's policies are having uh, in these places. And that should be our primary concern. All right. That was Kevin Young, UMass Amherst professor, talking with Becca Polk about Bolivia, U.S. imperialism, what's happening today, and giving us some historical overview. So we want to give a big thank you to Kevin for spending time with Indigo Radio. And uh, speaking of imperialism and military interventions, we should also 
reflect and um, think about this upcoming week in which many of us in this country celebrate Thanksgiving and thinking about the historical legacy of colonialism and genocide of Native people. And with that, I just want to make sure people know about the day of mourning that happens every year in Plymouth. And this year actually is the 50th uh, day, um, 50th anniversary of the National Day of Mourning. Um, the, since 1970, Native Americans have been gathering at Coles Hill in Plymouth, and it's a it's a great place to be on that day. Uh, a lot of good speeches. There's a march, and then there's a big community meal. Also, for those that are in town, there is a community meal at St. Michael's Church that is free and open to the public, uh, which I think is also, I think, I believe it's the 45th anniversary of that in Brattleboro. And a couple of us went last year, and it's also a a good place to be on that day. So again, we want to thank Kevin, and uh, you've been listening to Indigo Radio we will be back next week, and we're going to go out with a song again by Nilo Zoruko. And again, he was a Bolivian songwriter, wrote a lot of protest songs back in the 70s that were banned in Bolivia. So we're going to go out with him, and thanks for listening. We'll put the recording up later today. Si el río del tiempo quisiera marcharse para no volver La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, déjalo correr La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, déjalo correr Sangrando en la tarde se irá por su cauce, moriré en el mar La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, volverá el amor La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, volverá el amor Amar es vivir, odiar es morir La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, deja de sufrir La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, volverá el amor La vida es linda muchacha, no llores, volverá el